and welcome to the Risk Factors Podcast. I am your host, Elizabeth Sherwin, and on this episode, I will be talking with Julie Vaccaro about mental health. I want to acknowledge that in this episode, we cover a variety of topics related to mental health, including trauma. If you or someone you know could benefit from mental health resources, please see the link posted in the description of this episode. As Julie and I will discuss, mental health is health, and seeking mental health care is an important part of maintaining health and well-being for many people. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Risk Factors podcast. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Julie Vaccaro. Julie received her bachelor's in science in psychology and Spanish with a minor in public health from Santa Clara University and is currently working on her master's in counseling psychology from the University of San Francisco. Thank you so much, Julie, for joining me on the podcast. Hi, Elizabeth. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited for our conversation. And so to start, if you could please introduce yourself and share a little bit about your journey that led you to the work you're doing today. Yeah, of course. Um, so I am currently in graduate school, like you said, um, in my second year in the University of San Francisco. And I have always been interested in mental health. Um, so that's um, how I got there was just growing up around people who practice mental health. So I actually have people in my family who are uh, therapists and um, psychiatrists. Um, so, so my mom is actually a psychiatrist. So I was definitely surrounded by it growing up. Um, and I've always loved learning about humans and how their mind works and why people do what they do. Um, so I had an idea that I wanted to study psychology in school, although I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do with it. And I thought about public health and I thought about different research careers. Um, and then therapy was always in the back of my mind. And I didn't want to do something just because my family did it or my mom, you know, because they wanted me to do it. I, I always had it like, oh, I'm going to do my own thing and forge my own path. But, you know, when you grow older, you start to, you know, look inwards and see like what you do really want to do, whether it's like what you're, even if it is, you know, what my family does. So after talking to people in the field and learning more about different types of therapy and mental health careers, so I felt very drawn to it. It just, it just felt something like that, that just felt right. Um, and then there's one book, which I would highly recommend. So I, I read this book and it actually like spurred my interest and just piqued my interest to be a therapist. And it's called, You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. Um, so it's like a memoir written by a therapist and it got me really interested in the field. And then I worked at and still work at UCSF, which is University of California, San Francisco, um, in research in psych health psychology and working in research at a big institution. It's, it's a whole different experience from what, you know, you think of it like mental health as working with people, working with, um, patients and one-on-one, -on -one, but it was, it really wasn't like that. So um, it made me a little bit disillusioned personally um, being in that field because I wanted to do something more practical and just applied while I was part of and learned so much about research. It, I wanted to like, okay, well, this is the research and this is what the research says, but how do you apply it and how does it impact actual human beings? So that thought process made me think, okay, well, this is really imp what's important to me is working with people and just 
personally just I just thought my personality and my kind of skill set matched matched with that more. Like yeah, like many people during the pandemic, uh, it really forced me to evaluate what was important, what I really felt passionate about, what I wanted to do, and that kind of just spurred me and pushed me into applying to grad school. So I applied in 2020, so right around April 2020, and that's where I am now. And I'm glad I I'm glad I made the jump, and it's worth it. That's great. Thanks for sharing. It's always interesting to see or hear about how people kind of found their different career paths. And it's always interesting to see too, when people have family members in a certain field and then kind of not wanting to do what they're doing, but then coming around to it too. And I actually uh, read that book as well by Lori Gottlieb. I think I listened to it as an audio book and I really enjoyed it. So Me too, definitely. I listened to it, yeah. Okay, yeah, it was a good one. I like to listen to more like memoirs and stuff on audio books. Oh, I'm the same way. Yeah, especially <laughs> when they, when they uh, the author's... Um, speak, but I don't think she did in hers, but yeah. It's really yeah, I don't think she did, but whoever narrated it did a good job. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I'm, you know, in a slightly different field from you, I can definitely relate to what you were saying about sometimes feeling disillusioned with academic research. I'm, I don't know where I'll end up after grad school, and I really have enjoyed working at academic uh, research institutions, and there's just so much to be learned and so much exciting research to contribute to, but then there's also this other side, like you mentioned, of applied, more applied research, and how do we apply what we're learning from these research studies in practical ways, and so that's been exciting for me uh, personally to also kind of explore through different opportunities through grad school, so just definitely can relate to you there. And so I know you had a minor in public health at Santa Clara. So how does your interest and experience in public health impact the way you approach the field of psychology? Uh, yeah, so I, I was uh, very, and still am very interested in public health. And although the fields, mental health and public health, you know, that they have their differences, definitely. Um, but mental health is such a big part of public health. Um, it isn't always talked about as much. And the interesting thing that I learned about mental health is that mental health really is health. You know, it's almost redundant to say mental health and then physical health is two different things. I mean, they overlap so much because that's what it means to be healthy, right? To have a good headspace and to be physically well as as well. So um, it's also so much more connected than people think. So public health policies, you know, so many of them are trying to help people meet their basic needs, like access to healthcare, food security. And so just to put that out there, like those basic needs are necessary for people to have, to have mental, their own, you know, mental health and to be healthy, um, huge for stress and anxiety levels, because if you don't have your basic needs met, if you're hungry or you're unsafe, you know, you're not, of course, you're not going to have a good, a good mental health. So in terms of mental health, so there's so many different interventions um, that I could think of. They can, that can be done on a public health level, like in institutions and places like schools and doctor's offices were the two that I, I thought of. Um, so you've probably learned about this. And I learned first learned about this, about this in my public health class was the ACEs study with Nadine Burke Harris. Uh, so the ACEs is an acronym for Adverse Childhood Experiences. Um, so these are traumatic events in childhood so there, there are 10 of them that was in the original ACE study, so they added more, but witnessing violence or experiencing abuse or neglect, things like that in, in childhood can have huge negative long-term impacts. So it's, and 
especially on mental health, but it even impacts physical health as well because trauma is stored in the body. So there's physical impacts, definitely such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, even raises the risk of cancer and just so many causes. Of, um, so causes of death. So experiencing four or more ACEs is significantly associated with increased risk for seven out of the 10 leading causes of death. Um, so these aren't just mental health problems. This is a physical and overall health problem. And so what Dr. Burke-Harris did, um, is she's at the crossroads of public health and mental health by setting up policies. So she's actually the Surgeon General of California. So she's doing state-level policies, um, and she's been involved in research um, and doing in underserved neighborhoods. So she's a pediatrician um, in San Francisco, in Bayview and Hunters Point. Uh, they're primarily Black neighborhoods. So yeah, so she's helping people who have high levels of ACE scores and treating, uh, screening them. So when they come to the doctor's office, um, doing a screener, having the kids and the parents fill out how many of these events that they've experienced. Um, and so this helps people who are at risk. And then she uses the, the, this information to help inform care and to inform treatment, to give them the, to have, make sure their needs are met and to make sure the parents are supported. And so this is exciting that it's starting to be more implemented at the state level as well. There's also school interventions too that I have heard about and looked into. And schools are such a key place to talk about mental health and opening up conversations um, because kids are, they're, they're at high risk and they, their brains are so plastic and so young that whatever they do experience in childhood will impact them later on. So this, this can be, you know, mitigated, their, their mental health can, can be helped through teaching them and through education and putting that into school curriculum. I've seen a lot of schools start implementing mindfulness practices, yoga, breathing techniques, things like that. And there was a school here in the Bay Area in Pittsburgh, which is a minority, it's, it's a minority community, and they taught them like mindfulness skills. And it's, yeah, it's great to start on those, start on it young because the more, the more we can take advantage of these reversing and the young brain and reversing the harmful effects of stress. And this was actually done during COVID like through online classes because obviously everyone was so stressed out and still is um, from that time. So yeah, so it seemed to be pretty, um, pretty successful people. There isn't a lot of research on it, but through like interviews that children said they really, they liked it. Um, they would go teach their parents, the parents would benefit from it. Um, so things like that. And then, I mean, there's obviously so many things that can be done in schools, but you know, having teachers address mental health, especially the mental health affecting BIPOC communities, you know, having people of color who are counselors and, and yeah, there's just so many things that can be done. I think schools are a great place to start. That reminds me of where we met actually through the Resilient Families Program, RFP through Santa Clara University and Sacred Heart Community Service in San Jose. Mm -hmm. So for those listening, that program is still going on. So definitely a plug to look that up um, and check that out. But it's a really exciting program that works with parents and their young children to foster mindfulness and resilience. And the program has the imagery of the program is like packing your toolkit for success for you and your child. Um, and so each week of the curriculum, 
community members. Um, when I was there, it was like all mothers and some of the mothers were trained to then be facilitators for the new moms that were joining the program. And so they each week they would go through a different symbol and like to pack in your suitcase. Like I think it starts with an anchor and then they have different things that they can add and they go through different mindfulness techniques and can share about their experiences. So it's a really cool program. And it that's where I first learned about ACEs. And so I think what you said about starting young is very true. I learned from that program of like starting with toddlers and helping them foster um, mindfulness and self-compassion and different techniques for mindful breathing and dealing with stress and things like that. Because I think as we've mentioned on every episode of this show so far, like you said, the things that happen in childhood can impact people and will impact them later on. And so we should start young to set those kids up for success. Yeah, that was a big part of why I got interested in mental health and and mindfulness too. And you see how much it helps people. And even incorporating the whole family, the parents is so important. Like we target the children, which I mentioned and you mentioned is really important, but I think it added that extra bit of, you know, support was to help them to the moms and the children going in it together and working together as a family and harnessing that resilience. Yeah, exactly. I think that was such a, is such a key part of the program and something I really enjoyed about it. So you mentioned several really interesting kind of ways to intervene related to mental health in schools. And I think, at least when I think of mental health, many of the interventions are very individual, like individuals seeking out therapy or medication or lifestyle changes. But you know that I'm like very interested in more structural and systemic change. So are there other examples or maybe you could dive a little deeper into some of the things you already mentioned about more systemic ways to improve mental health? Yeah, that is such a key balance and something I think about a lot because obviously as a therapist, it is more individualized, but there's a lot of things, you know, we can do as therapists and that definitely, um, there can, you know, definitely they can do at the government policy levels to help health therapists and to help people with mental health at different levels. There's some uh, population changes. Uh, I, so like Nadine Burke Harris does, you know, I would love to see health screeners and doctor's offices um, and to target, to really target mental health and treat it like we do physical health. And obviously our healthcare system is, is flawed, but you know, the way that we focus on health in the healthcare system, like why don't we focus on mental health as well? And that's coming more and more. And I see that, but there is, um, you know, there's certain insurances and coverages that really only cover physical health and, um, you know, sicknesses on the physical level when they're not addressing the mental level as well. And that could be like a huge, a huge thing. And I see that coming, you know, maybe in the next 10, 20 years, I don't know, but I would like to see yeah, treatments, insurance companies really treating those, um, you know, with both both mental and physical health, like with the same importance. Because like I said, they're so interconnected. And this is also at the school level as well, but you can also help mental health by not necessarily targeting mental health. There are so many things that are correlated with mental health. So helping kids stay in school and preventing um, dropouts can be huge um, because the more likely you are to drop out. Well, so people who have mental, 
so they call it like behavioral disturbances in children, they're more likely to drop out or be suspended. And then that leads them 63 times more likely to end up in jail. And then people who don't graduate high school or live 9.2 years less than high school graduates. So they, this all has a ripple effect, right? So it starts at the school level and then it ends up affecting the, um, you know, the systems, the public health institutions, the institutions like prisons and the hospitals later on. And then of course the juvenile justice or the, just the justice system, but the juvenile justice system uh, specifically, there's um, a statistic that 75% of youth in the juvenile justice system do have mental health disorders, which is a huge um, amount. And so jails or jails and prisons are actually the some of the places that have the most mentally ill patients um, in the, you know, in the entire U.S. So using, using those institutions to treat and to rehabilitate is really important. And so many of them have um, substance abuse disorders. And then going back to the trauma and ACEs, substance abuse, people with sub substance abuse issues are much more likely to have childhood trauma. So it's two thirds of injective drug use can be attributed to childhood abuse and trauma. And obviously that those, those people with substance abuse disorders, they are, they should be treated as mentally ill patients and they should be treated as patients. Um, but instead they're treated as criminals, which is a huge flaw in the system. And, and instead of, yeah, instead of incarcerating them, how about we rehabilitate them, give them a treatment I love that point of what can we do to prevent people from ending up in these situations that then put them at higher risk of having mental health issues. I think uh, my last episode with Aubrey Blacker, we talked about foster care and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I think it's similar to youth in the juvenile justice system where youth in foster care have higher rates of mental health disorders and they certainly have higher rate, higher numbers of ACEs. And so um, it's just really interesting to see how so many of these issues, whether we're talking about mental health or foster care or other education in my, in my conversation with Dana Chung about equity in education, I think so much of it points to children and young children and how can we create safer environments for them? Because like you said, you don't have to specifically be targeting mental health to improve mental health in a population. I think you said that really well. And yeah, that I think that image of a, a ripple effect really helps understand how these issues can lead to more issues down the line. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it helps to look at it from, from just a different way and it, from a different lens. And there's so many different lenses you can look at it through, whether it's, I mean, they all come together, but whether it's trauma, whether it's, you know, racial injustice and what education, like there's just so many things and factors that overlap that we have to look through um, all these different lenses to really see the big picture. It's not just one thing. Yeah, exactly. And in public health, we often look at the upstream factors. And so I think having that lens really helps see that it's getting individual people mental health treatment or support is absolutely necessary and important. But then another part of the picture is looking upstream and trying to understand why do communities of color, poor communities, people in the juvenile justice system, et cetera, why do they have higher rates of mental health disorders? And what can we do from an equity perspective too, to really improve conditions? 
for these communities most impacted. Mm -hmm, definitely. What do you think we can do to make, you know, kind of going back to this equity issue, what can we do to make mental health more accessible and affordable? I think you already mentioned insurance companies covering mental health care. That would definitely be a big one. <laughs> yeah, that would be a huge one. And that's something we talk about in, in therapy school too, is I, you know, I'm going to find, I'm going to have a, a priority to make sure I, you know, accept um, insurances. And there's like a slight, whether you work in private practice or community health, mental health clinic, there's a sliding scale concept, which is you do, you charge based on how much their capacity to pay. So, you know, you get their income and then you slot, like basically slide on the scale. Okay. If they're at this income, they pay less. And then people with higher incomes end up paying more. So it's actually that concept, which a lot of therapists do. I don't know if people know that, but um, that, I think that helps a little bit. I mean, obviously it's not going to solve everything, but that's one thing that we can do. So the main problem, obviously, with mental health care is that it's not accessible to everyone. The, a lot of the things, the work that, so train, my, I mentioned earlier, my traineeship is my third year of grad school. And then we have many, a few years, two years of um, getting our hours to get licensed. And so in a lot of those programs, um, which I'll do next year, um, is they, they are working in community mental health clinics. So a lot of the students, a lot of the practitioners that work there are actually students or trainees. So it can be much more widely available. And then of course, there's just not to go on a tangent, but the people who are, you know, like I said, the trainees, you know, we're not going to be fully trained. We're not going to be fully licensed. So they're not, you know, by that definition, they're not, the people who are getting that care aren't getting like the best care they can possibly get because they're not being treated by licensed, but it's a, it's a start. So there's obviously a lot more that needs to be done, but that's just um, one thing I wanted to comment on. And then there's obviously a, um, a lot of systemic factors at play. There could be more policies. You know, I mentioned like health insurance coverage and then the, the uh, government backed programs like Medicare and Medicaid should definitely be covering more mental health issues. And not just once people have a full on diagnosis, because looking at the DSM, you know, to be a diagnosis it does have to significantly impact, you know, your life and result in um, disability in some way. So before that even happens, you know, preventing, preventing it and really getting to the root of the issue while it's, you know, while it can still, before it gets worse. I wanted to also talk about stigma as well. This is a societal issue, definitely. And while I, I do think the conversation around mental health is getting better and um, people are much more open with it in certain communities, there are also a lot of communities that don't have that conversation. I, I know that when we did Resilient Families program, they, the population was mothers who were from Mexico and they were immig immigrants. And then they didn't have, they really, a lot of them were open to it, definitely, um, but they didn't necessarily have like the vocabulary to talk about mental health and to talk about trauma and things like that, even though they had been through so much um, trauma. So, you know, how do we harness like the resources of the community? And I think that there, and I, I do come from a um, Latin background, Hispanic background. So I know that there is a stigma definitely in the community. And it's especially like, depending on the gender as well, like in, um, in the men in the community, they really talk about like machismo and only being self, 
just being independent and having and treating, you know, their own problems, like are there problems, they're not going to burden others with it, you know, they keep it in. Um, and it, it's seen as weak. Um, and they would, um, a lot of them, not everyone, but in the society, it's like, it is seen as weak to go to a therapist and to seek mental health treatment in that community and a lot of other communities too. So a couple things I was thinking of um, is like partner, partnering with community members like we did. Um, and RFP was partnering with some of the community leaders and having them become facilitators so that they were seeing people, role models in their own community as well. And then like, like I mentioned, there's kind of more indirect ways you can help mental health and help prevent it. And some of those indirect ways I thought of was more like alternative, kind of alternative resources in the communities, um, not, not directly labeled as mental health treatments and not saying like, oh, we're using this to as therapy or to treat your mental health because, you know, there's a stigma around it. Um, so just having things like that do affect mental health, like helping, um, so loneliness is a huge issue and that results in so many, you know, drug, drug addiction, suicides every year and just support groups, getting people together, exercise, gardening, things like that, that can keep people coming together and in the community. And there's so many different ways that and community healing groups and the ways that their, you know, their ancestors practice healing, you know, what, what did their, the ancestors and if they come from like an indigenous background or from, I don't know, a certain country, like maybe that they're, they didn't do therapy, but maybe they did like, you know, other kinds of treatments. Like some people find religion to be very therapeutic. So just things like that, that it's, it's not as stigmatized. Definitely. And I think going along with that, you mentioned, you know, partnering with community members. And I think something you might have mentioned elsewhere, too, that would definitely, I think, relate here is supporting more diversity and inclusion in who ends up working in this field, right? So that people can see more people like them and from their communities in these professions as therapists. Is that something that I've heard is that counselors and therapists I think it's generally like pretty white pretty wealthy and it would be hard to go to someone who couldn't necessarily relate to your experiences so I imagine that that's something you know given the high cost of education in this country that's something too that needs to be worked on it's like how do we open up pathways for people to become mental health professionals oh yeah I mean that's a whole other like tangent I could go on but (laughs) In the field, there are so many unpaid internships and really to, to get ahead, like unfortunately, many people do have to go that route and go through unpaid inter- internships or get really low paying jobs um, that if you don't have other support systems, you know, you couldn't realistically do. So that definitely gives people with, like, who already have the means, it gives them a leg up. And if you don't have the means to work not without pay or to get paid, you know, even below minimum wage sometimes, then you're, you're really at a disadvantage in the field. And that's, that's a whole other topic I could go on, but um, but yeah, it's, it's not, it's not as inclusive as it could be. So I know something else you're interested in that I'd love to hear more about is nutrition. So how is nutrition related to mental health? Yeah. So thanks for asking. This is a topic that I feel very passionately about, and there's a lot of exciting new research coming out on the relationship um, between food, the nutrients that we eat, and then our emotional health and well-being. First of all, and I'm not 
an expert in biology at all, but um, kind of like an, a, a way of explaining it that relates to biology is that 90% um, of our serotonin is produced in the gut. And as you might know, serotonin is the feel good hormone that results in just like overall feeling of content, contentness. And when someone is depressed, they have a lack, they tend to have a lack of serotonin. Um, so you don't have those hormones to help make you feel happy. Um, so if the gut is imbalanced or not working properly, it can really affect our psychology. And, and I've actually experienced this too. And, um, I had a, um, a gut imbalance and it did affect my mental health. So there is something called a gut brain connection. So that means that the gut and brain are much more closely connected than people think. So when I, once I learned about this, and I think this is why it really resonates with me, it's like, oh, that's why I was feeling the way I was feeling when I had my gut, um, my gut issue. And I talked to other people who have also experienced the same. And so it's nice to know when you see the research that explains how you were feeling. So, so anyway, yeah, the gut brain connection um, is basically just means that the things going on into your digestive tract and all those bacteria and the good and the bad bacteria that interact in there. Yeah. However, well it's going really affects your, your brain um, and your hormones. So there's, you know, people, people know this, I think instinctually, like there is a connection between the gut and the brain. You know, when we have these emotions, it affects our, our stomach and our digestion, like being ner nervous um, can affect and can result in like a stomach ache or nausea. So we know that it's connected, but it hasn't really like been researched until recently. And so there's a researcher at Harvard named Uma Naidu. Um, she's a, called what's called a nutritional psychiatrist. So there are actually a lot of vitamins and minerals in our food um, that are vital for our brain health and our mental health. So people, many people are actually depleted in the minerals they need right now, not only because of processed foods, sugar, and um, and foods that don't really have nutrients as much, but also even if you are getting enough fruits and vegetables, the soil is depleted of nutrients. And this is because of over farming and climate change. So that's something that's actually probably going to stay and isn't is probably honestly just probably going to get worse in our soil. So yeah, this problem is here to stay, I think. And one of the key minerals and one of the, there's so, there's so many of them, but one of them I'll just focus on right now is magnesium. And 50 to 70% of Americans are deficient in magnesium. And this is one of the supplements that's key to blocking the activity of um, these neurotransmitters that bind to calming receptors. So this leads us to feeling more peaceful and in a resting state. And it actually blocks anxiety um, hormones and things like that. So it actually prevents anxiety. And so it's important to actually make sure you're eating the foods that have magnesium in the diet. So a lot of them have levels of magnesium, like leafy greens, um, nuts and seeds. And then there's also the option, which of course, you know, talk to a doctor about it and everything before and test your magnesium levels. But if you do have low magnesium levels, um, there's also supplements you could take. And so many people are so quick to take medication, um, which is of course has a, a role and a really important role in psychiatry and mental health, but they do have side effects. So looking at kind of the root cause is important as well. So if it is a magnesium deficiency and you talk to your doctor about it and make sure your levels are at where they need to be, there's no really like side effects or risks to taking, to taking it or to taking these different vitamins um, or to just make sure it's in your diet 
as long as it's accessible. So that's, that's a whole other thing that I'll of course get into, but in a, in a little bit, cause I know that that's a, that's a problem and these foods aren't accessible to everybody and they definitely should be. It's actually a huge problem, I think, and a public health problem. Everyone, I think everyone kind of knows this, but high levels of processed sugar can um, also affect health. And what people might not know is it affects mental health. So there's a link between sugar intake and depression and anxiety. And people think it's uh, due to hormones and brain chemical imbalances. So like anxiety, feelings of anxiety and anxious um, thoughts can actually be a result of just blood sugar dropping and having those rises um, in blood sugar and quick drops. And that can lead to anxiety symptoms, which I think a lot of people kind of instinctually know because of how we feel like we get that high when we have sugar and then the, the low that comes afterward. And so maybe you've learned about this as well, Elizabeth, in public health school, but the soda tax program, and they're doing that in Berkeley. And actually one of the head researchers of that program is I work with at UCSF. And yeah, so Berkeley is one of the places that taxes sugary drinks, such as soda. Soda is kind of one of those things that are just really high in sugar. And like I said, there's the connection to uh, mental health illnesses. And then, and as well as physical health, of course, you know, there's, it's correlated with diabetes and um, obesity and cardiovascular disease and things like that. Um, So this Berkeley, this program in Berkeley, which is, you know, such a great example of a public health policy um, that was, I think that was successful. It's resulted in less purchases of sugary drinks. So soda consumption in Berkeley dropped 21% a year after the soda tax was levied. And so three years later, they were drinking half as much soda as they did before, which I think is incredible. That's such a good um, example, like I said, of a successful program. And then instead of soda, they were drinking more water. So they're getting, you know, their water intake up as well. And then what to make it even better and to just build on it is that the soda tax revenue, which they've gotten about one and a half million dollars um, so far, it funds nutrition education programs and local nonprofits. Um, and a couple of them are Ecology Center and Healthy Black Families, which are the names of the nonprofits. Um, and then as well as gardening programs and in schools to help kids learn about their own, uh, how to get their own food sources and nutrition and health and things like that. So yeah, I'm really, I'm really passionate about that topic. I think it's really interesting, the intersection of public health policy and then mental health. And then there's of course, like the whole other issue, which I could talk, you know, I'm sure we could talk about over and over again with every concept here is that there's the access problem and there's food deserts, um, that affect uh, most vulnerable and high-risk communities. So there's definitely systemic changes that can be implemented there. Um, A couple that I think can be implemented are the food stamp program. Um, I forget what it's called in California, but- I think um, it's called CalFresh. Okay, CalFresh, (laughs) thank you. Yeah. Um, You know, offering incentives, discounts, and just having it, having fresh fruits and vegetables available and they don't even have to be fresh. They could be um, frozen as well, just to make it last longer and make it easier, you know, easy to cook. You just, they're already, you know, in the freezer and you just heat it up. And yeah, so I I mean, there's so many things that obviously of course can be done to implement these, this access to healthy foods, but 
yeah, in the long run, these preventative measures just, they save a lot of money on healthcare in the long run. So it's definitely worth it. Yeah, that's so interesting. I had never heard of a nutritional psychiatrist. So that was really interesting to hear more about the gut brain connection. Um, And that's so true what you said, like, it seems so intuitive when you gave those examples of, of like, of course, my gut is connected to my mind, but it's not definitely not the first thing that comes to mind when I think of mental health. So that's really interesting. And I would love to do a whole nother episode on kind of like food sovereignty and food apartheid and food deserts. But something I've learned a little bit about um, is what you mentioned, kind of like different programs to try to address food insecurity. And I think like the food stamps program in California, CalFresh, with that you get discounts at like farmer's markets and other places that sell fresh food. So those types of programs are are trying to kind of address that problem and direct people to healthier foods. But I think the problem is so much bigger than that. So that's kind of one step in the right direction. But I definitely want to learn more about different kind of options to make these foods more accessible. And yeah, I love the example about the the soda tax. I think I've said this several times, but if I could do one thing, just like make one thing magically disappear in the world, it would be sugary beverages. So like soda and juice, because they're just so bad for you. And people don't realize Um, when I was working in Guatemala, we had a poster in the entryway to the clinic that had like a bunch of common sodas and juices that you could buy there. And then the bottles were empty, but they were filled with the amount of sugar, like actual like granulated sugar that was in each beverage. And some of them, like half the bottle was filled with sugar. So the idea was to educate people because people don't realize, right. When you're buying like a drink, you don't realize that it has that much sugar. But something else that I learned was that that type of problem has roots that really have nothing to do with the individual. Like, Mm -hmm. especially in somewhere like Guatemala, oftentimes sugary beverages are actually cheaper than water or they're more accessible than water. And then the water isn't really clean. So when you're going to, you have to choose between buying a bottle of water and buying soda. And it's, it's not, you know, it's an issue, I think around the world and depending on where you are, the, the response may be different because at least here in the States, a lot of areas, not everywhere, as we know from Flint, Michigan, but a lot of areas have cleaner drinking water. So that's not as much of an issue here, but still it's something that like seems so easy, just like educate people to not buy these things, but then there's a lot of different, more structural cost and access to clean water and things like that, more structural issues that are involved. Yes, absolutely. And you should definitely have, uh, you know, another expert come on and talk with this because there's so much to talk about, but educating can only really take, take us so far. Obviously people do need to be educated and some people don't really know the impacts of soda, but then you kind of make it an, like, then you kind of get people to feel the sense of like blame or shame about it. And they're like, why can't I stop drinking soda? You know, and it's really not their fault. You know, it's because it's made to be addictive. Um, and like you said, the systemic in problems in Guatemala, because it's easier to, um, well, easier, or cheaper, more available. And it's like, it's just really just made to be addictive and to be available. Like that's not an accident. There's a lot of like money in it. There's a lot of corruption on the national level, lobbyists trying to lobby for the availability of like soda and 
a lot of corporate greed and those all play a part and it's it's just so important for people to understand that it's not your own fault if you can't stop eating sugar or you can't stop eat, drinking soda it's it's so much bigger than just you definitely i think that's really well said and so true of so many things in health like we have individual choices but there's so many other things outside of our control that are contributing to our health and i think going back to the topic of this episode of mental health that's really true with mental health too like as you mentioned like experiences in childhood or um, experiences of food insecurity or trauma or homelessness or different things, of course, that's going to affect your mental health. It's not, it's, it's not about your choices necessarily. And so in public health, and I've talked about this on some episodes, I think the first episode mainly, we talked about pathways in which social exposures such as stress impact biological processes. So from what you've learned, how does stress and trauma impact individuals at the biological level? And I think you did give kind of a nice intro to this of like how your gut is connected to your brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'm obviously again, like not a not an expert or a science. Um, biologist, but um, what I've learned and what they have started teaching therapists and all about the impacts of trauma. So it starts, it's, it's, it can start in childhood, you know, there's all kinds of trauma, but when it starts in childhood and when it's what's called complex trauma, which is chronic. So over time, different coming from all these different angles and at different points in time, not just one event, um, complex trauma can be really, really detrimental to health and mental health. And like I said, the ACE scores and everything. So children, the plasticity of the brain. So when a child suffers this complex trauma, we go into, the child goes into survival mode. So you're just trying to do anything you can to survive. And the brain kind of, the limbic system turns on and then the prefrontal cortex, which is the rational logical side of the brain turns off to save energy. And then the limbic system, like the amygdala, um, the fight or flight um, process starts to light up in the brain. And then that's kind of the, becomes the default is the fight or flight. So people become, even as adults, when they're, once they are safe, they're constantly on the lookout for danger. And again, it takes a lot of energy and mental energy to put into that process. And they might not even realize, of course, they don't realize they're doing it. It's um, subconscious, but the memories of the event are stored differently. So different things can trigger these flashbacks um, and like painful, you know, painful memories of the event. So as an adult, these things are always constantly surrounding someone who has had complex trauma. And then it puts them at a much higher risk of developing psychological problems such as substance abuse, because, you know, they are trying to probably mask and self-medicate um, you know, the pain that they're feeling from the trauma. So therapists, you know, we have to be trauma-informed, trained to treat trauma and see it and evaluate for it as an underlying cause. If it is, if it is there, it can be an underlying cause of mental illness. So not just treating, you know, whatever it is, the substance abuse or the anxiety and not just saying, okay, well, here are some, you know, tricks to like help the anxiety and um, just do this and you'll be fine is you have to look at the underlying cause and really address that in the patient as well. So I know you're passionate about demystifying all the different mental health practitioners out there. So can you share about the different types of counselors and psychologists 
maybe for those listening who might be interested in this career path or those looking for a therapist? Yeah, so there are, so mental health practitioners, they go by many names. It can, it can all be pretty confusing, you know, if you're looking for a therapist or if you even are interested in the field. There's licensed clinical social worker, LCSW. So those people are, so all these people, basically, they're all trained to help with um, mental, mental illness and treat them. They're just trained in different ways um, and I have different specialties, but so LCSW, um, they might, they're more trained on kind of social issues, society as a whole. And then they've also gotten some mental health training. So they've gotten licensed as counselors. If you're looking for someone who has more social knowledge, then knowledge of like social justice and things like that, um, LCSW is a good place to go to. My program does, trains people in both um, MFT, which is marriage and family therapist, as well as LPCC, which is licensed professional clinical counselor. So they're both trained pretty similarly, but LPCCs are people trained to diagnose and treat mental illness, just, just kind of general on a more general level. And they just do, they do therapy and then marriage and family therapists, like, like it sounds, I mean, they are, we are trained to look at people from the perspective of their relationships and their families. So a lot of people, a lot of them work with couples and families, but you don't necessarily have to, you can specialize in any mental health issue and do individual therapy as well. And then there's PsyD, which has a doctorate. So six years of school. And they're, again, they, they're very well trained to diagnose and treat mental illness. If someone does have a doctorate, just keep an eye out. It might be more expensive because they've had more training, but you also might get more specialized care um, in specific um, issues. And then PhD in clinical psychology, which um, if you have a doctor, you can be called a psychologist. So they studied for six years and then in clinical, their clinical psychology PhD, they likely focus more on the research side of things. So like I've mentioned my research work at UCSF, a lot of them are professors um, and their PhDs, they're psychologists, but they're more publishing papers and teaching at a university. And they might also be providing care as well. And then there's a psychiatrist, like I said, what my mom does. She's trained in, they're trained in medicine. So they go to medical school um, and then they are um, specialized and specialized to prescribe medication. So if you are looking for um, prescriptions and pharmacological treatment, um, then you definitely want to see a psychiatrist, but just be aware they can be more expensive. And sometimes, but not always, do they provide therapy along with medication. And then, of course, one of the things we always learn in school is that talk, when talking about like different theoretical orientations and different ways of practicing is that whatever, you know, if you're looking for a therapist, you know, there's all these like letters to look at and like um, certifications and license licensing type, but the most important thing is the relationship between the client and counselor. So if if you feel like you choose to someone who makes you feel comfortable, safe, uh, accepted, and really listens to you, that's the most important thing. So make sure that you're getting that, um, as well as of course looking for something that's accessible to you financially. Um, you know, just somewhere that you can easily get to, as well as of course the therapeutic relationship, which is the most important thing. Thank you for explaining that. That was really helpful. I, I definitely learned a lot from that, clarifying the different oh, roles good. and training. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Julie. I think this was a really interesting conversation. I learned a lot about mental health and I think just making that connection between some of the more 
systemic and social factors that can influence mental health and then influence our biology, which I also think you did a good job of really explaining that mental health is health. This conversation provided a lot to think about and a lot more for me to explore about how as public health professionals, we can really do the work to improve mental health in our communities, because as you really highlighted, it's so connected to so many areas of health, including nutrition and equity and physical health and so many different areas. So thank you so much for joining the podcast and and highlighting this important topic and sharing about your work and the things you're passionate about. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Risk Factors. As I mentioned at the beginning, if you or someone you know are in need of mental health resources, please see the link posted in the description of the episode. The link is to a CDC webpage with various helplines and websites and also includes resources for finding treatment. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.